Hi team, how's it going? Hey yeah. How are you, Andile? Good. I'm on mic, on my words. Are you on mic? Oh. Yes, you are on mic. <laughs> you in office. Do you mind if I potter around and just capture some conversation? Of course not. Yeah? Of not. You happy please, with that? Please. Sorry, we haven't met. Thrifi no, Lindsay, nice Thrifi to meet you. Lindsay. Good to meet you. I'm actually Lindsay. not in cons, I'm just squatting. Yes. Squatting is good, you know, hanging out with the colleagues, why not? And SK. Oh no, don't worry. Yeah. I know him well already. You're hearing the sounds from my recent visit to the Founders Factory Africa Bramfontein headquarters on a beautiful Johannesburg summer afternoon. It turns out to be a rather special day at the Pan-African Venture Builder, so more people are in the office than I'd encountered on previous visits. The cheerful mood and chatter belies the emotional scenes that will come later on as the team bids farewell to their head of investments, Rajiv Dayam, after he spent three years at the company. There'll be hugs and tears aplenty, accompanied by speeches about always belonging to the FFA family, a sentiment that will come up again later in this episode as we explore endings and beginnings. I'm Rifilo Mpakanyane. Welcome back to Builds to Thrive, the Alina Trujina story. This is the third and final episode of a podcast mini-series unpacking the story of a little Latvian girl who's grown into a global citizen with audacious, world-changing entrepreneurial ambitions. If you've missed the first two episodes, I recommend you dive into the show notes, wherever you're listening, for links to those so you can take in the whole of Alina's inspiring journey. On this installment, though, Alina lets us in on some exciting investment opportunities that she and the rest of FFA's senior leadership team are currently converting, moves which are the culmination of some strategic finessing behind the scenes. And with drive that remains unmatched, Alina lets us in on her continued international professional progress. Because, as we established in the very first episode, can't stop, won't stop. Over the past two episodes of Build to Thrive, the Alina Trujina story, we've been able to appreciate Alina from different angles. As the high-achieving Latvian refugee whose tight-knit family fled the USSR to start over in Australia. Latvia became independent from USSR. So 1991 and the years following that, Russian people were discriminated against. It became very hard for my parents to see a future for my sister and I. We tracked Alina's professional growth and how she came to work in the worlds of venture building and early stage tech investments. I remember coming back to the World Bank to tell them all about the social impact vehicle that I'm now leading corporate partnerships on and working with entrepreneurs. And one of the colleagues just turns around and says, you've joined the dark side. We also explored the impact of the work being done by Founders Factory Africa, the operator VC that Alina co-founded and served as chief strategy officer. For us, it comes back to the founder. First and foremost, you're investing in the team, you're investing in the person, you're investing in their vision, but you're most importantly investing in their ability to execute. But now it's time to get into that much alluded to revelation that we teased you with at the end of episode two. In broadcasting terms, we say don't bury the lead. So Alina is standing on the cusp of an exciting new direction in her career, and it's finally time to spill the beans. 
Yes, it's a bittersweet moment, a very bittersweet moment. I am very proud to have been offered and very humbled to have been offered an opportunity to lead a team and start my own fund in a completely different region, which is Southeast Asia, a climate-focused venture fund that will invest in early-stage pre-Series A companies and entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia and the region, and most importantly, contribute to adapting to the realities that we're facing through climate change today. So it is my next chapter, which I am also beyond excited, but also nervous about and cannot wait to start really working on it. Southeast Asia is absolutely one of those regions that, that's most adversely affected, so it makes sense to do it here. And we're looking to start investing and deploying in the early half of 2023, which means we're looking to finalize all first close agreements by that time frame. And we're also looking to and are talking to people. I am already excited to take interviews around building a team and looking for founders and launching officially first half of next year, as well as starting to invest in that time frame as well. So it's something quite big, quite fundamental and quite disruptive, hence the name. I asked Alina if the climate fund that she'll be spearheading from 2023 has a name yet. And of course, who the investors are. How big is their commitment? So we're envisaging the fund to be 40 million in total. Our initial investors are all family offices and they're very strategic in that some of them are in the region, so Southeast Asia, and some of them will be outside of the region. And it's that, again, combination of knowing the market and being on the ground and having the context, as well as LPs coming from more global market access that's very important to us. So when we support the companies and the founders that we'll invest in, that comes into play incredibly strongly. So not least throwing my background of kind of traveling and working across the world. Also having our investors be part of a kind of a global remit is very important. Do we have a name for the new fund yet? Yes, it's called the Radical Fund. (laughs) Tell me why that name. If you're doing something radical, it's something far reaching and disruptive. And that speaks to me a lot, but also comes from a story uh, kind of several years ago when Rue and I were forming the company and part of the kind of the culture values. Here we go. Culture again was that we said it has to be radically transparent. I remember that because it's very important to us in how we think about building teams. And so for me, Radical and the radical fund means that you have to have a very large scale approach to climate change and to seeing the mass adoption of new behaviors and helping people adapt to it. Although Alina isn't at liberty to name everyone involved just yet, I was curious about how she was tapped to initiate and run this new climate fund. At the end of the day, what it comes down to is that all business and all new partnerships comes down to people. And this is a family and a specific individual within the family I've known for a little while. And it's incredibly humbling to think that he has recognized the vision that we have in terms of building early stage ventures and the vision for climate in Southeast Asia. Being a Southeast Asian family, they are very much focused on sustainability and innovation entrepreneurship. And after several conversations and lots of iteration and lots of collaborative co-designing, we ended up here and no doubt we'll continue to evolve our mutual mission for the fund. 
So we met over lots of dinners and lots of telephone calls. <laughs> and that's definitely something that is very important. It comes down to people. So all the future investors that we'll have as well, I'm looking to building trust and partnership and relationships and maybe even friendships, but definitely strong partnerships within those relationships to be able to make that work. And that's very, very important. The poorest 50% of the global population is actually responsible only for 10% of global emissions. And it's actually the 50% of emissions are attributable to the richest 10% of the population. Now just think about that. The climate elitism that exists is absolutely astounding. According to the International Monetary Fund, if left unchecked, climate change could shave 11% of the Southeast Asian region's cumulative GDP by the end of the century, as it takes a toll on key sectors such as agriculture, tourism and fishing, along with human health and labour productivity. So of all these important sectors, I was curious about which one Alina is most eager to tackle first. A lot of the time we think of climate tech or when we speak of climate tech, unfortunately, think people automatically think of solutions that help mitigate or prevent the climate change. The reality is that climate change is here. And the very unfortunate reality is that some regions like Southeast Asia are actually affected the most and are adversely affected. If you think about how these regions like Southeast Asia are vulnerable to these impacts, one cannot just focus on hard tech solutions, right? And so in our fund that I will be leading, we'll be looking at climate adaptation and climate resilience. And as you mentioned, yeah. what is it? What are those broad range, broader and more complex range of solutions that are required to help societies actually adapt to the realities of climate change? So for us, it's full circle, changing the perception of people that climate tech needs to be hard tech. It is not just about taking carbon out of the air. It is absolutely a broader, more complex reality. So we're fascinated and really thinking about what are the different business models that actually help change behaviors. Again, very much like what we've seen in other sectors. How do we change behaviors so that they can lead to mass adoption of some solutions that actually have an outcome on climate change realities that we're facing today? So I'm fascinated by this. I'm also very much touched by, and you mentioned being closer to home, the realities of what people go through. Floods, pollution, you know, my own family have experienced bushfires. It is real, it is here, and we can do something about it. And again, the entrepreneurs are, I believe, the best placed agents of change. At the time of recording this conversation, world leaders were gathered in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, for the COP27 climate talks. And in a landmark achievement, low- and middle-income countries were finally able to put the matter of loss and damages on the table for the world's richer and, dare I say, most culpable nations to grapple with. In other words, how do poor countries that overwhelmingly bear the brunt of climate change get compensated for current and historic effects of unmitigated carbon emissions? I asked Alina, in light of her intensified climate focus, how she views these multilateral and political gatherings. Having been privileged enough to be part of similar type of discussions and negotiations and sitting in the room when the kind of the, those climate change agreements were drawn up years ago, I definitely know that there's a lot of things that happen outside of the room, right? 
Of course, we see the resulting statements, but a lot happens in those outside the room conversations. And I'm actually most interested in that. Of course, I don't have access to that. But my general take is that we need a multitude of different solutions. So we can't just rely on the politics. We can't just rely on the agreements that are made. Back in 2015, even there were some promises made, but not delivered in terms of paying back to to some of the developing economies for what was done. And of course, it's what happens after the fact. It's going back to the kind of the execution pieces. Will we see action? Will we see the different actors doing their part? And, you know, I do have a lot of hope in what the entrepreneurs are doing in the space. And just because I can see that what they envisage and what they're building and how they're actually touching the lives of millions of people with innovative solutions and how that brings about change, to me, is the closest I see and sort of waiting for a long-term agreement uh, to come into force or policies to be enforced. I think you need all of the above, but I'm certainly playing on the entrepreneur side. You might be wondering why you've heard so little mention of Founders Factory Africa so far in Episode 3. Well, never fear, because despite the fact that Alina will be striking out on a solo journey as CEO of the Radical Fund, her relationship with FFA changes but remains intact. She'll transition from Chief Strategy Officer into an Executive Advisory role. So with the two investors coming on board, we'll be able to build and support and invest in more entrepreneurs. And actually, there'll be dedicated support to women entrepreneurs, as well as those playing in the critical spaces and the critical sectors in Africa. That's that bittersweet moment that Alina was talking about earlier on. Her role at FFA might be changing, but she also transitions on a high. Alina leaves her CSO position having helped secure two new investors for FFA. The value of these investments sits at $110 million. That's about 1.9 billion rand. When I press Alina for details on who the investors are, well, she plays it cool. I can't wait. I'm itching to share the news. Unfortunately, we'll need to wait a little bit longer, but I can absolutely hint at the fact that they will be coming in shortly. It's a significant and well-known investor and actually following, again, our model of building in the most important sectors on the continent and scaling that and scaling our efforts uh, as well as capital. So we'll be coming out with an announcement shortly and as excited to also share that there'll be a second announcement. So we are literally sitting on our hands ready to reveal. And that investor and partner will be, again, a very big partner that will transform and enhance what we will be doing for the next five years to come. So stay tuned. I know it's never nice to end things like this without actually dropping names, but please stay tuned and you'll be hearing about those two announcements, hopefully in the next weeks and months. For those who are anticipating the announcement, such as myself, Alina, can you just give us a sense of the kind of impact that you imagine these two new investors are going to have, not just on FFA, of course, but on the potential entrepreneurs that you serve? Yes, absolutely. So as always, more capital, more funding on the continent is incredibly welcomed. The right type of capital is ever more important. So encouraging more entrepreneurs to start their businesses, supporting existing founders in scaling their companies and growing their companies is what we will be dedicated to, as well as thinking through different types of capital. Again, there's equity, there's debt, and then there's, of course, grant-based capital. 
health solution across the continent are reaching such diverse needs for millions of populations across Africa. When we think about health tech, it's anything from infrastructure to point of care diagnostics to data models or insurance-based models within the health space to, of course, telemedicine and the growth in telemedicine or biotech. So it's quite a diverse range of solutions. But broadly speaking, for us, if we think about health and health tech, it's about broadening the access to health for millions of people and affordability. So how can we solve for those two with this new partner of ours? And I applaud them because they actually see that the commercial scalability of startups is hand in hand as important as the solving human problems, right? So a lot of the time we think of foundations as impact first. These guys aren't impact first and they understand that commercial scale and sustainability is actually, again, is done in parallel or is linked to and interlinked to the impact that we serve in the ground. The bigger this, the venture can grow and scale in a sustainable matter, the more patients they're going to serve, the more medical clinics they're able to open, the more livelihoods they're able to touch. So that depth and breadth of impact is absolutely interlinked with commercial scale. And I think that's very important. The context has changed, the type of funding has changed, and the needs of the founders have changed. For example, at the moment, there's kind of an increasing need for a lot of venture debt. And so we are actively right now thinking about launching actually an instrument where we can serve both debt, equity, and grants to facilitate and again, to align to the needs of the entrepreneurs. So the iteration never stops. An obvious question to investors like, you guys are 40 people, you are sitting at this much, and now what I'm giving is going to be three times. How are you going to move from 40 people to 100 and something? What processes are you going to put in place? How are you going to give me comfort that the governance, the processes, the systems that needs to be in place is going to enable you to operate at 110 people? That's the voice of Bongani Sitole, Managing Director of FFA. He joined FFA in its early days and has been privy to and part of its growth. The point he's making now is how and why the due diligence process to get the two new investors on board has taken over 18 months. He helps us get into the psyche of the investors. I would say, you know, risk mitigation, because the risk is now tripled. So you need to think through what does risk look like? How do you reduce risk? And so on. So there's a whole lot of things that one needs to think about in order to prove to an investor of this magnitude that you are able to deliver on your mandate. A crunch moment in this process where it was, if not touch and go, yeah, you're asking yourself or wondering, is this thing going to happen? We've had so many moments of that, to be honest. This has been one of the complicated deals that we, we have ever done. Yeah. Right. The number of entities that we needed to incorporate to enable the structure to work. Number two, the legal nature of it has been mind-blowing. Yeah. Number three, the number of people that needed to be involved in making this a reality has been hard. We knew that from approval to making it a reality is going to be a lot of work. Right. We now need to think about what does the operationalization of this thing look like? Sure. So that that has been quite a lot of work. It has been a process that I think amongst leadership and specifically Alina, who drove a lot of the engagement, has really been exciting. And I think without her, it would have been challenging. On the back of that compliment, Alina insists that this process succeeded because of collaboration and the fact that everyone on the FFA team is a specialist in their own right. 
Another crucial member of the team who's worked alongside Alina, Bongani and Ru to secure these latest and substantial investments is Founders Factory Africa CFO, Tabiso Foto. I spoke to her on that lively Friday afternoon at the FFA headquarters. And while you might be able to hear some music in the background, don't be distracted from Tabiso's words of excitement around what she hopes this new injection will help FFA achieve. Closing the gap to a certain extent, there's still a gap. If I look at the challenges of the entrepreneurs that we're working with right now is we're coming in very early, right? And there's different stages that investors are investing at in this venture capital space. There's us who come in very, very early. We're investing in an idea and we also invest in businesses that have probably built some product, but they still need help scaling that product. And we come in early, we do our bit. Our hope is that when we finish with the entrepreneur and their startup, we leave them somewhere where somebody else can take over and also fund them and build the business as the business is growing and help them scale even further. What we're finding is that where we invest, there are so many players in terms of investors that want to invest at Series A, but there is a gap between this seed and Series A where a lot of businesses actually fail. Yeah, And I think research has it that anything between 60 to 75% of startups actually fail before they go to Series A. We've had to come in and give bridge loans to some of our startups where we can see that they just need six months to get to that next fundraising round. And we can see they will get it because everything is solid. All the metrics are there. This funding, I think, is going to be very impactful because we're going to see a lot more businesses surviving. Now that's how you pivot from an organization you co-founded. You leave it with a passionate and sure-footed team, but most importantly, you leave it with an added $110 million spring in its step. Like I said before, talk about pivoting on a high. That's absolutely, definitely the cherry on the cake. For the very first time in 15 years, my parents and I and my sister, we can call each other during the day. I think it's only three to four hours apart as opposed to needing to squeeze into a very early morning or very late at night. Alina's move to CEO of the Radical Fund, as well as her relocation to the Southeast Asian region, means it'll be that much easier to keep up with her tight-knit family based in Australia. So while she's excited about that prospect, there's still another meaningful connection that we haven't explored with this move. How did Alina broach the subject of starting her own fund with her co-founder, Rue, and the team at FFA? I um, think I had a glass of wine before that. I don't condone alcohol abuse, but I have to say it did involve a glass of wine. So it was a hard conversation. Rue is an incredible partner. And most importantly, he's focused on people's growth and not being in the way of people's growth and giving people opportunity and supporting that opportunity. So he was incredibly supportive, excited, sad. But we both ended up understanding that actually, as a co-founder at Founders Factory Africa, it's very important for me to continue to stay as part of the family and contribute value. I've said to the team, I'm not going anywhere. But also, as I said, Rue was incredibly supportive of the next chapter in the journey and as he always says just go for it and don't f it up is his quote (laughs) we established in the first podcast that alina's default mode is can't stop won't stop so i wondered whether she'd given herself some time to take stock of her achievements so far and perhaps even pat herself on the back 
I'm humbled by the words of friends and partners and future investors and current investors, our current board. Everybody has been incredibly supportive and that means so much to me. And as we said in our previous conversations, that perseverance towards making a change in the world at scale is something that I really hope to continue doing for the rest of my life. And so thank you, everybody. And thank you. And I think if you ask any venture capitalist or any investor in VC, they'll tell you there's no linear path towards VC. And that's very important to emphasize. I really hope and want to, as much as I can, contribute to that space. Being in Southeast Asia is very important. Women are very far and few in between. In terms of women fund managers, I really hope I can contribute to that space of thinking, but also modeling and very humbled and very proud to be a woman fund manager leading the fund here. Thanks for listening to Build to Thrive, the Alina Trujina story. Please don't forget to like and rate the podcast. And if you enjoyed Alina's story, then do share it with your friends.